standing in body or spirit, I invite you to join me as we recite uh, what was the fundamental confession of faith of the people of God uh, in Jesus' day. It was called the Shema. If you'll, we'll, if you'll follow after me in Hebrew, we'll do it together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There is such a thing uh, known as the Jerusalem Syndrome, and basically about a hundred or so people a year will end up institutionalized. They will come to Jerusalem and with a great deal of anticipation and then disappointment and then delusion, they end up with a form of madness that affects them. Uh, So I thought I'd give you that warning before we start the sermon series. (laughs) You may be seated. Our youngest son was uh, home from school at Duke uh, a couple weeks ago. And while he was home, we took him to Port Aransas because he hadn't been to the beach in quite a while. And on the uh, way home, uh, we passed an old restaurant and he made some comment about the restaurant. And it just turns out that that happens to be the site of, um, of my wife and I's first date. So we told him the story of our first date where we went sailing with a couple other people and everyone got seasick except me. I went and ordered a big chicken fried steak. Um, but then that led to other stories. We, as we drove home, uh, we talked about the apartment where he's living in Durham. He's now moving to a house for his uh, senior year. So we talked about the apartment we lived in Durham for three years, the same apartment, about 450 square feet. And it got into stories of apartment living. And then, of course, led to the requisite stories about basketball. And I told him some things that had happened while I was there. One, one year, um, there was a, a game, and I hadn't paid attention to the weather, and a blizzard came in while we were at the game. I'd walked about a mile and a quarter to get to the game. When I got out, my friend and I noticed the parking lot just covered with snow. And uh, he had uh, no gloves and I had no hat, so we both basically made it back partially frozen. Uh, and so we told him stories like that. And family stories are important. And, and especially in our house, the Duke stories are important. It kind of gives an idea as to how, uh, what things are important to us and how we roll. In fact, we have uh, two daughters-in-law and perhaps a, a future daughter-in-law. And then when ESPN came out with that show a couple years ago about the controversial Duke player, Christian Leitner, and it was called I Hate Christian Leitner, we made our daughters-in-law and future daughter-in-law watch the show. And so when it was over, we checked back with them to make sure that uh, uh, that they understood the way that their husbands were raised in our house and uh, and had the appropriate attitude about basketball and Christian Leitner. But the uh, the future daughter-in-law, at, when it was over, we asked her, well, what do you think? She said, well, I still don't like him. So we said to her, well, you need to watch it again. I mean, if you don't get this, you don't get us. It, it's, it's a family story. There, there's a fancy word for stories like that. They're called etymologies. They kind of ex- they tell you how things began. And, and if you understand how things were in the early days, you kind of understand how things roll today. I tell you all that because when we come to 1 Samuel 24, 
It's really a family story. It's part of two books that are primarily about King David, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. But after you get this chronological story of King David, at the end there's like these four chapters that are sort of tacked on, 2 Samuel 21 to 24, and it's like, oh yeah, we forgot to tell you this stuff about David, or, or we don't know where this fits in, but you need to know this stuff. And chapter 24 is a really important story because it's not just a family story. It's a story about how the family leader, David, bought a particular piece of property, which they did not know at the time, but we know looking back, would actually become the site of the temple in Jerusalem. Before Jerusalem was even a city of any consequence, David bought this land. And so the story tells uh, not just the story of David, but it actually ends up telling the story of of Jerusalem and of the temple, which is another way to say it's a story about the people of God. Jerusalem has always had a central place, not only for the Jews, but has had a central place for Christians. Um, you perhaps have seen early maps uh, that were drawn uh, that would have Jerusalem as the center of the earth and then Europe and Asia kind of coming off uh, from that center. Uh, the, the stories about Jerusalem are legendary. I don't know like how many of you have your special glasses for the eclipse tomorrow, but Josephus in the first century said this, that if you were up early in the morning and you looked at the temple when the sun came up and bounced off the marble of the temple, you had to shield your eyes or you would go blind. That may be an exaggeration, but metaphorically it wasn't. That's how they felt about the temple. Because the temple was the place where God um, and the people came together. More importantly, it's where heaven and earth met. In Jesus' day, they considered the temple where those two things came together. Before Jesus' day and Solomon's day, it was, it was even more like, this is God's throne. God's got a throne, just like any king or queen's got a throne. And that throne sits in the temple. And so the temple is very important. So to know the story of the temple is to know our story as the people of God. So having said all that, I'd like to tell you a family story from David about how the temple land was purchased in Jerusalem. But here's the warning up front. It is a weird story. You're going to go home and read it and think, that was weird. Yes. And the Bible makes no attempt for it to not be weird. That's what's interesting to me. Here's the weirdness. Here's how it starts. We're told in, that in Second Samuel 24 that God's upset with the people of Israel. So God incites or encourages or hints to David that he should take a census. David takes a census. Uh, and so as a punishment for taking the census, God sends a plague upon the people. What? It's a strange story. And so um, right away the question is, well, why is, what's God so upset about? The, the, the story doesn't say. Well, some scholars remind us that since First and Second Samuel don't always go in chronological order when you get to the end, that what this event uh, harkens back to a previous time when the people revolt, uh, joined rebellions against David on at least two occasions. And David, as you know, is the anointed king of God. He's God's chosen leader. Twice the people rebel against him. So some people say, well... God's tired of that rebellion, so God says we're going to do something about it. Could be. But if you go over and thumb to uh, a few um, books over in the Bible, to, uh, to Chronicles, its story, uh, it's uh, the same story, it says that God didn't tell David to do this. Satan told David to do it. Which is it? We don't know, but this, what, this is what we do know. A census is a very bad idea. 
How do we know it's a bad idea? Because there's a man that's famous in the Bible. He was David's like uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You know, he's like the commander of all David's armies. His name was Joab. And every time you meet him in the Bible, he sows absolutely zero spiritual sensitivity and zero theological understanding. He just doesn't. That's not the world he, he runs in. He's just military, and that's all that matters to him. Except when David says, all right, go take the census, he basically says, I don't think that's a good idea. Joab, who knows nothing of God, knows God. Census is a very bad idea, but David insists on doing it anyway. Why is the census a bad idea? We're not told exactly, but here's some possibilities. Number one is this, that normally kings take census for one of two reasons. One, they want to tax the people. So I got a nose there so I can make sure the tax bill gets to you. The other is so I can know how many soldiers I can muster, I can gather together for a fight. And so David even says to Joab, I want to know how many people can carry this weapon. How many fighting men do I have? And you're like, well, okay. Well, it's not okay. Because King David's kingship has always been grounded in the security and protection of God. And so at some point, it's as if David is saying to God, I got this. I'll handle this security business myself. I can round up enough soldiers. You don't have to worry about me. I'll take care of this. And so part of what happens in the, in the census is that um, David even had it right earlier in his life in the 20th Psalm. He said, you know, some people ch- trust in chariots and some in horses, but I trust in the Lord. But in the census, he's not trusting in the Lord. He's trusting in how many soldiers he can get to show up for a fight. Some people say the other problem is that not just um, uh, that he's not trusting, but he's rather prideful. It's like, look, God, I was a shepherd boy. Now look how many guys I got following me. I've got thousands following me, and I can tell you exactly how many. And that makes a lot of sense to me. If, 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 you're, if you look carefully at the Bible, especially in the Proverbs and then in the stories of the Bible, there's just no way to make pride look good in front of God. When you're prideful, I just can't think of a time when God says, that's a really good thing. I'm really glad you're a proud person. All the way through, when people are proud, it's as if they're no longer wanting God in their corner. And so this is a demonstration of David's pride. And then finally, and I think this is interesting, David's the king. He's supposed to be in charge of helping the people live out their dreams and be faithful to God. But he's no longer, when he starts to count them, he's no longer interested in their names. He's interested in their numbers. He's no longer interested in them as a people. He's only interested in them as a statistic and a means to the end of securing his kingdom. In other words, when you start treating people like objects, you are no longer a good king. And so... For whatever reasons he takes the census, it's not a good idea. In fact, if you don't believe me, go to the New Testament. The most famous census in probably all the Bible was a guy named Caesar Augustus, who, by the way, said that he was king of kings and lord of lords. And just to prove it, he took a census in Luke chapter 2. And because of that census, these peasants, Mary and Joseph, had to make a long journey to Bethlehem an interesting story. It's almost the Bible saying back to uh, Caesar Augustus, you think you're in charge because you called the census. But this is what happens. A new king has been born during your census. Uh, so the census is not a good thing. And so David, David finally realizes it apparently and calls the prophet in and, and basically says, I got to repent and I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of God. Um, and the prophet said, well, there'll still be punishment. 
And so God sends a plague. And the plague, we're told, with the angel of death leading the way, kills 70,000 people. That's a lot. But we've talked about this before. Remember that in the Bible, numbers are not just numbers. They're often symbols. And so two of the most important symbolic numbers are seven and ten. Seven is perfection. Ten is completeness. So it is possible. I'm not saying 70,000 people didn't die, but it's possible that what the Bible is saying is, look, enough died to make the point. It was the right number, whatever that was. And But the story is interesting because the plague is going on and then God looks at the angel of death and says, that's enough. And then David repents. And so David sees the angel of death at a threshing floor owned by a guy named Aruna in Jerusalem, which is not a city at this time. It's just, it's got walls, but it's not much of a city at all. And so uh, David goes to the man that owns this threshing floor and says, uh, I need to offer sacrifice to God, so I need to buy this. And the guy says, well, I got everything here you need for a sacrifice. I got animals, I got wood, I got it all. I'll just give it to you. And David says, no, I need to buy the land. Let's stop there for a moment and note a couple things. Number one, what on earth is a threshing floor? Uh, Well, if you want to see one, Dinah's got a great picture in the gym. You'll have to go over there. But they're usually on a hill or a high place, a place that's very windy. And it'll be like a flat area uh, where the ground is hard. And you take your harvest and you, your wheat and you throw it from um, the container that you've got up in the air. And what happens is because it's windy, the lighter stuff, known as the chaff, blows away. The bad stuff blows away. The good stuff settles back down on the ground and you collect it and there's, and there's your wheat for the harvest. And it's called a threshing floor. They're usually in a high spot, usually a windy spot works best. That's one of the things. But the other thing I want you to see is this. When we first see David in this, in this story this morning, David's in control. I got this many soldiers. I got this God. No worry about defense. It's in my hands. I can handle it. But now when we meet David, he's like, I got nothing. I'm not in control. I need to pray to God. I need I need to offer a petition. They did it often through sacrifices. I need to make a sacrifice. I need to call on God. I no longer trust in myself. That's a very important family story to know about David. That when he thinks he's in control is when he gets into trouble. And when he trusts in God and turns to God in prayer, that's when he is his his best self. So what happens is, Aruna says, well, I'll give you stuff for the sacrifice. And David goes, no, 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 I need to buy it and buy the land. So David buys the land. Another weird part of the story is the story says he bought it for 50 shekels of silver. Well, that's a significant amount of money, but it's not a king's ransom. But it's a significant amount of money. But if you flip over to Chronicles, to the same story, it says that David pays the guy 600 shekels of gold. Now, that's a lot of money. And, and so you wonder what's going on there, and we don't know. Some people say, well, this, what David does to the guy is give a down payment. And what happens for the 600 more shekels of gold that come in is that all 12 tribes contribute to buy this land. Well, why would they want to do that? I don't know except to tell you that we know in looking back this land becomes the site of the temple. 
You remember the video you saw? Remember the dome of the rock, the gold dome? That's on the threshing floor. That's also on the site where Abraham uh, brought Isaac. That's a significant piece of land, and significant things don't usually come without sacrifice. So they agree to uh, buy it for, for this amount. And then that land, because we know the rest of the story, actually turns into the main part of Jerusalem, turns into the temple. So what? Well, there's this. The Jews, when they interpret the Bible, have a principle, and Jesus would have known this because he would have learned it from a guy named Hillel. They have a principle known as first use, which is the first time you find a word in the Bible, a concept in the Bible, an action in the Bible, a place in the Bible, anytime you find something like that, what you learn there, should you should remember every other time you see it. So the classic example is the word love in the Bible doesn't even show up till the 22nd chapter of Genesis. 21 chapters, you don't find the word love, but the first time you find it is when God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your one and only son, whom you love, and go up to this mountain, which of course was the threshing floor centuries later. Um, so basically every time the Jews were to think about love, they were to think about a father or a parent's love for their child. That's the controlling metaphor of love in the scripture. Love can be a lot of things. It can be brotherly love, sisterly love, romantic love. But the main way you think about love is the way a parent loves a child, the way that God loves us. And then when you get to the New Testament, you're still thinking about that when God's one and only son uh, becomes a sacrifice as well. So the first use. So having said that, what's the first use of the temple? And the first use of the temple is before it even becomes a temple. It's when it's a threshing floor. And here's what I think we're supposed to remember, both as a temple and as the new temple, the body of Christ. We need, I think, to remember at least three things. Number one is David is at his best and we are at our best when we are not in control. When we give up control. I think there are at least three kinds of people in the world. There are people who think they got it and they got it on their own and they don't need God. They don't go to a temple. They don't build a temple. Then there are many people in the ancient Near East, the second group of people. They build a temple like the Egyptians, but it's only so they can control their God. It's a little bit like programming. It's like, I'll put this stuff as an input and I expect this output. So I'm going to do these things for the God and the God must do these things for me. That's not David either. The third one is this. I'm going to give up control, and I'm just going to pray. I'm going to give up control, and I'm just going to ask God. And the first use of the temple was simply to say, God, I got nothing, but I'm going to offer you what little I have, and I'm going to throw myself on your mercy. That's the first thing. Second, uh, uh, second thing is this. The very first use of the temple, when David's bargaining for the land, when the guy says, look, I'll give you the sacrifice, David says, no, I need to offer this so the plague won't kill the people. Well, God has already stopped the plague, but David gives you a hint as to what's going on in the temple. The temple is not for our own selfish purposes. The temple is always for other people. The temple down through the years will be where they offer sacrifices, first of all, for the well-being of Israel and all of its people, and then eventually for the well-being of the world. We come here as the temple and the body of Christ, not for ourselves primarily, 
but we come here for others. And then finally, what else do we learn in this first use is that David comes with, well, he, David's in a slump. He comes with not the best of, uh, of a background. He has taken a census. He's demonstrated pridefulness, lack of trust, uh, imperson- depersonalization of his people. He comes, but he still comes and offers prayer to God. He's like the threshing floor. Remember in the threshing floor, we throw it up. The bad stuff blows off. The good stuff stays. Whenever we come to worship in the temple or as a temple, we don't come as perfect people. We come as we are. And we just offer what we have, the good and the bad, and we trust that God will forgive and blow away the bad and take and build on the good. That happens in the first temple. It must happen in the new temple, the body of Christ. There are two stories that could be in our family, stories of control, manipulation, lack of trust. And then there's the other one, the story of, we'll throw ourselves into your hand, God. We'll trust you, not ourselves. That's the story of this temple. And I hope through the years, that'll be our story and we'll stick to it.